0: Well, uh thank you for the invitation, and I really regret that Greg had to go home. I was thinking today, you already had a preacher here visiting. Maybe he would have stayed longer if you would have asked him to fill in. So you never know what you might be missing. Um Everywhere I go, and I try to repeat, the necessity of reading the Bible and not just I got a few verses in today it's the idea of reading books of the Bible Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 3 whereby when you read what I wrote you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ now if I were to ask virtually for a show of hands, I'd say, everybody would be raising their hand. Yes, I would like to have Paul's understanding in the mystery of Christ. And it tells you right there. Whereby, when you read, everybody talks about studying. And I'm not against that. But you can't study well if you don't read well. You have to read. And I really believe we miss out on so much. Because when you read—let me make another observation— rabbis would never allow their students to read silently. Never. They had to read aloud. And I believe that's the way you can keep your focus. Like, I think I grew up reading silently, and my mind would drift from time to time. Maybe at one moment I'd be thinking about a tree planted by the rivers of water, and I look out my window where I live, and there's a tree. And there's uh, really woods behind that tree. And suddenly my mind has drifted out there, but I'm still pronouncing mentally the words before me. But when you read aloud, you can tell immediately if you're reading well or not. I was reading a statement today that said... uh I think so without a comma or anything and so I was thinking I think so but I think so that I can make a plan and I, I you know just a comma yeah you know, some degree of punctuation helps you to understand that and I want you to realize you'll catch it pretty quickly because it's hard to drift now. Why would the rabbis do that with their pupils? Well, for me, it's like a double portion. I think uh, the portion that belongs to the firstborn. I get to see it and I get to hear it at the same time. And so do not underestimate the value and the necessity of reading and reading units. Uh, I've done some reading about poetry. And one thing they want you to do when reading poetry, read the unit. It's not like two verses of the poetry. They want you to go all the way through. If it's a sonnet, all the way through to the end of that sonnet. And so that's why I try to adopt books every year of the Bible. Now, you don't have to read the book in its entirety In one day, it can be done with most of the books of the Bible. But I would suggest to you, don't move from that book till you finish that book. Your spot reading, like I'll read here and I'll read there, I honestly think that does not help understanding. I think there can be a value in it, but there's nothing like reading units, complete units. So I want to encourage that. And if you do that, I know it will help you. It's not, I imagine it will. I know it will help you. It's the divine plan. When you read, you may, not a guarantee, but you may understand Paul's knowledge in the mystery of Christ. If you would, at this moment, I want to start a journey, but that begins in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you go there with me. And let's begin at verse 13. It's not the verse I want from this paragraph, but it's a good beginning for it. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust that's in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. A lot of times people ask, why do we even have classes in the prophets? Why do we even study the Old Testament? Well, it's because I don't know that you could easily open your Bible to any place and not have a quote or a reference to the Old Testament. Right here, we're taken back to the book of Leviticus. That's where that statement came from. Be holy, for I am holy. Now, that statement is made three times in the book of Leviticus. When you think just the repetition of that would be driving a point home, I want you to understand something else about the holy word. The holy word appears 152 times in the book of Leviticus. Now, the book of Leviticus has 27 chapters. By the way, the Holy Word does not appear in chapter 1. I don't know if you're getting my drift here. There are places where it is repeated multiple times. And so, if we want to learn about holiness, and we have to learn, because the writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one, that's no exception no one will see God. It has to be on God's terms. It says, be holy, for I am holy. That didn't change from one testament to another. It's the continuing. It, it continues to this day. Be holy, for I am holy. Just for a curiosity moment, uh, I do want to go to the book of Leviticus, but I'd like to go to the first quotation of that, be holy for I am holy. Leviticus chapter 11. And what I want you to appreciate, but this will not be the purpose of the lesson tonight, is that the context for that first quotation is between clean and unclean animals. And there you're being told, be holy for I am holy. Uh, Let me give that reference here at the end of the chapter. Verse 43, You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. You shall be holy, for I am holy." Neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now I have to repeat it twice here. There are two more chapters where it's repeated. And so the emphasis is great here. If you want to maybe understand what I think, we're talking about with the unclean and the clean, it really sets up the situation for Peter to come to realize that he can go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Because even the Jewish people would see the Gentiles as unclean. When they would be outside of the territory of Israel and they come back, they would shake the dust off themselves to come into the territory. That's the way they felt. they have been contaminated by a Gentile world that's out there. Be holy, for I am holy. But when the Lord lets down that sheep with all those animals in it, and he tells Peter, rise, kill and eat, Peter says, I've never done that. Can I make a point to the side? Peter's not what the world wants to think of as a saver. Peter is a conscientious man. Only a conscientious man can say, I've never done whatever it is. I've never done that. And so to think of Peter as having a woman in every port, please don't get that image of Peter. He has his faults. but He's not a womanizer. He has nothing to do with that, if I understand the Peter of the Bible. Now, tonight, I would like for us to go to chapter 1. Of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is what I'm teaching lately. I do a, a chapter every Monday night in Chile. And we have people from all over Spanish speaking countries plugging into that class. I have a class every Wednesday when the fellow's up for it. But it's one of the young people I studied with from camp. Uh, this fellow was at the same camp with Greg. We both worked those camps together. And uh, today I did the sin offering in the book of Leviticus. That would be in chapter 4. I enjoy every chapter. My first time to teach Leviticus was with the junior high class in Starkville. And we made an agreement among ourselves. We would read the book every week. I can't ask a student to do that if I'm not going to do that. And so we're reading the book of Leviticus on a weekly basis. At the end of the year, the young people were telling me how much they enjoyed the reading. That's what I want people to get out of reading. It can be a, a delight to read and to understand. There's no reason why. You can't understand Leviticus. I'm afraid we have a mental block. It says Leviticus. Well, those are for Levites. And I'm not a Levite. But what you're going to see, this book wasn't written for the Levites. It's written for the sons of Israel. It's to be understood. Everybody needed to understand this book. I'm about to read that. Now, I want you to appreciate the beauty of it for just a moment. When everybody knows what ought to be done, there are what we can call second balances. We like that in government, supposedly. But in the days of Eli, the the priests sin for food. They do have a right to some of the things that go to the altar. And the... Men come, and they insist they're going to take it one way or the other. You choose which way, the hard way or the easy way. We'll take it by force if we have to. But they are pleading. No, let's do it for the Lord first, and then take whatever you want to take. But what I want to appreciate, they understood that it wasn't right, and they could argue that point though maybe physically if I can't win the battle. But it's to understand everybody needs to know the story about holiness and sacrifices. Now, when I first made this observation about 152 times, my son read the book two or three times, and he came to me and he said, Dad, I see the Holy Word a lot, but... Uh, I don't think I've seen it 152 times. And I will say, well, I can show you where you can see a lot more times if you understand this principle. How do Hebrew writers make a superlative? You'll be saying, I didn't come tonight to get a grammar lesson. But you know, sometimes when you get this lesson, it can be delightful. I want people to find delight in studying the Bible. I really, really do. And in chapter 2, we won't get there tonight, but in verse 3, we read, The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy, it will say, of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Most holy is literally holy, holy. And if you'll start counting, you're going to see you get a lot more numbers involved in the use of the Holy Word. Now, when I was first teaching this class, the young people would look and say, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. I didn't tell when people would think, that's kind of interesting, but will I ever need to use it again? Well, use it in the Gospel of John. Gospel of John will say in the New King James Most assuredly. That word is, those two words are really, amen, amen. I don't know if you know this, but most assuredly is used many times in the Gospel of John. It's amen, amen before Jesus wants to tell you something. He'll say, most assuredly, I say unto you, what makes it so certain? It's because Jesus said so. Most assuredly. Amen, amen. The Gospel of John is the most amen book of the Bible. By that usage, 25 times that phrase, most assuredly, 50 times if you count each word. Amen, amen. Now, coming to chapter 1. Just to read verses 1 and 2 with me. Let's see if we can get something valuable here. Now, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. Now, someone says, This is look book for the Levites. But it begins saying, Speak to the children of Israel. You see my point? It's for everybody. And so that shouldn't frighten you as much. It's God expecting everybody to get it, not just the tribe. You may not know this, but in antiquity, most people didn't know what priests were saying. The word enthusiasm in the Greek, is to talk about someone so excited and yet people don't know what the excitement's about. But they'll say, that's what the priests do when they're going through their routine. Not godly men, but the priests of Diana or the priests of Zeus. And so the enthusiasm word was a word used for their priests because of their excitement. And you can see how it got down to us. But did you see that with me? Verse 2 Speak to the children of Israel. They have calculated, I think we've grown up hearing this, that there were at least 2 million people at this time in the desert receiving the law that God gave through Moses. Some have said, maybe even 4 million. Now I want you to think, we go from God speaking to Moses. Moses to everybody, and then the application is when anyone. Don't you like millions shrinking down to one? You see, worship is about the individual. Uh, The letters in the book of Revelation, I'll conclude with this statement He who hath an ear to hear, let him hear that individual what the spirit says to the churches not just the church at Ephesus if you were a member there but what the spirit said to all the churches why do i read the new testament i read the new testament because i too want to hear what the spirit said to the church at rome or what the spirit said and, there, and rome's not one of the seven churches of asia or what the Spirit said to the church at rent. I want to hear. We all, I hope, want to hear what the Spirit says. It's an individual thing. In Mark, I did a lesson Sunday night. And I was impressed by the Lord using that thought of the individual. But he said, hear every one of you. Don't you like that? That's only in the book of Mark. But hear and he's talking to a multitude. It's not here like, can you hear me now? It's here with the idea of understanding and, and getting what I'm telling you right now. Hear every one of you. That's what I need to be saying every time I preach. Hear every one of you and mean it. It's just not because it's a cute phrase of the Bible. It's a beautiful phrase, but we want to communicate. The worst thing we can have for teachers and preachers are just the ones who want to go through the motions, maybe like a college professor that doesn't really care if you get it or not. I don't think that's teaching in my understanding of teaching. We want everyone to get it. And if you still have questions, we want questions. And we want to ask or answer them in a way that's not like a shotgun blast. What happens with a shotgun? Some projectiles there hit the mark. Some don't. But with a shotgun, you can pretty much cover everything that's out there. I want rifle shots where it hits the target every time. And I hope I'll never waste time beating around the bush. I want it to be focused. So let's go here and see what else we can see. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering and of the livestock, of the herd, of the flock. Now, I've had young people to ask me in South America, uh, after telling me they have the ability to play the guitar, when do you think I could come and Play for the church here and I will say well I understand the Bible to tell us it's only the fruit of the lips Hebrews chapter 13 not the fruit of the fingers it's the fruit of the lips and we see singing in the New Testament and then they'll ask me this question do you think what I'm doing something clean well I say I can't tell for sure you know If the music you're playing is woven into the fabric of our culture where any filthy and corrupt thing might be said with that music, yeah, it would be unclean. But someone can learn to play an instrument and it'd be wholesome. It could be uplifting, you might say. You might even say, I would like to hear more of it. And there'd be no shame in that. But I want to appreciate authority here. You see, I know that there are clean animals that cannot be put on the altar. You all know of one. Fish. There can be clean fish, but no fish was ever placed on the altar of burnt offering. That would be a corruption. It's clean, but not everything that's clean can be put on the altar. I can show you from Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 12, that deer is clean. Now, we got some hunters in here, but it could not be put on the altar. You see where I'm going? It's got to be more than just clean. It has to be authorized within the category of those things that are clean. Read on with me. Verse 3. One of my favorite verses here. If this offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now, one thing that will help you in the reading of chapter one and the rest of the book, but especially chapter one, it gets you oriented. You've got to see the distinction, distinction between he and they. Well, what do I mean by that distinction? He's the worshiper, and they, the priests, will help in that process. Like the worshiper, we're going to see, I don't want to give too much in advance, but he will kill the animal. He doesn't just get to the tabernacle and say, well, i brought this animal, and I don't know exactly what all y'all are going to do, but I'm going to stand over here and be quiet and, and observe. Well, I kind of appreciate that kind of thinking, but that's not what the Lord authorizes here. He authorizes that the man put his hands on the head of the animal, that the animal, Animal be killed by that man? Now, if you're really thinking, it becomes in the future almost an impossibility for some worshipers to kill all the animals they bring in one day. Like Solomon, a thousand in one day. Solomon couldn't do that. And by the time we get to the temple, we have and we have uh, Levites that can help in that matter. you can see that keep investigating no problem there but here the worshipper has a lot to do and it's not just watching now let me read again there's a quality about that male it has to be a male and it has to be a male without blemish You know, being at Mississippi State, there's a little bit more knowledge I get every day about agriculture and about animal husbandry. But one thing I knew from a boy, that I could buy a calf, uh, the female, for maybe $150 back when I was a boy. But when I was a boy, my grandfather had to pay over $1,000 for a bull. Why do you think that is? It's because the bull can reproduce more than the female in the herd. A cow can give birth to one calf a year. Y'all probably already know this. A bull can sire 25 calves a year. Where do you think? your future life. It lies in reproduction. And if you've got this fine specimen of a bull and you don't know exactly if that could be a bull that would be excellent for reproduction, but you have to pick one if you're going to come and offer a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. It's like sacrificing the future of your herd with your confidence that the Lord will provide, which is uh, something that Abraham said to Isaac when he asked about, we got the fire, we got the wood, look, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. Reading on in this reading. In the New King James, it says, He shall offer it, he, the individual, shall offer it of his own free will. Now, I don't know if you know, but that's a big debate even to today. Do we have a free will? And in some versions, they don't translate that here, free will. But later on in the book, the ones I've been reading, they talk about free will offerings. Do you have a free will or do you not? And that's, I think, an interesting point to realize. He offers it of his own free will. Now, my family's favorite point has been verse 3 at the end. At the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. I always want to be very careful how I give this piece of information because sometimes people want to say, I want to track this down. But I was visiting with the congregation and they were serving the Lord's Supper and there was this elderly lady. I don't think she was ancient. She was just older than I am. Maybe about my age then that I am now. But uh, during the Lord's Supper, She pulled out her finger clippers and started clipping her fingers, nails, fingernails. I tell people every Sunday, I really believe I'm at the right place. But you can be at the right place without the right focus. This is the door of the Tiber Echo meeting. You can't go out into the desert and say, I want to have a private moment with the Lord. No, it just doesn't work that way. You have to go to the tabernacle. And there is a consciousness of God before the Lord. A repeated phrase many times in the book of Leviticus. If you're not doing it with a consciousness of God, it doesn't mean anything. Really, it means something that's horrific, terrible. It should not be. And that lady shouldn't have been clipping her fingernails during the time of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter what you want to say. She should not have been doing that. And so I would like for us to think more seriously, when we come to worship God, it's the right place, yes, but it has to be the right Focus, a consciousness of God in everything you do, even in singing. It has to be a consciousness of God. I love the song We're Marching to Zion. One of the lines in that psalm says, Let those refuse to sing. Who are the ones told to not sing in that song? Those who never you are God. Never you are king. You see, it's not a right. It's a privilege. And it's a privilege granted to those who truly love the Lord. I like telling people, right place, right focus. You can't have one without the other. You're at the right place with your own focus. I think sometimes there are maybe Pentecostal people who are really trying to think about God in those moments whenever they're singing, but they've contaminated the singing by, I would understand, instrumental music that is not authorized. Now, coming back into our reading. Keep the distinction in your mind between, excuse me, between he and they. Then he, the individual, shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. A lot of important words in that verse. If we are studying, say, like the book of. Romans. What we generally like to do, I think it's a great idea. We like to see how Paul uses the very same words in another one of his epistles. It gives give me a clue. It can help me to really appreciate the word even more. Well, I have a place where Moses writes and uses three words that I have In the first really 20 verses, I know the chapter only has 17, but I want to go through verse 3 of the following chapter, all in one verse. Wouldn't that be helpful? Yeah, well, turn with me to Genesis chapter, hold your place here, please. But Genesis chapter 32, I think we know the story. Jacob has come home after 20 years being away. And he's anxious, if I could use that word, about meeting his brother Esau. And Esau, he is told, is coming with 400 men. It doesn't take 400 men to come say hello. Abraham Abraham had an army of 318 men. To give you some perspective on battle. He's coming with 400, and he is desperate in this moment. And he comes up with his own plan. His own plan is I will send gifts to my brother in waves, if I can paraphrase it. So one wave gets to him, and the information is Jacob, your servant, is following behind. And they pass on. And then another wave. You know, I like thinking of this like the waves of the ocean. One comes in, another one comes in, another one comes in. And he has a reason for doing that. I want you to see verse 20. And also say, is what he tells each one that's carrying the wave of animals. Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward, I will see his face, perhaps he will accept me. Three words, really important. The word appease, the word present, and the word accept. They're also in Genesis chapter 1, going chapter 1 into chapter 2, all in one verse. It's always good to put them all together. Well, what's the word of peace? It's the word atonement. But that begins to give you another idea about that, at least with the word of peace. It's the idea of turning away wrath. I don't want God to be angry with me. He definitely did not want Esau to be angry with him. He was hoping he could maybe soften him up, make him feel differently toward me. I definitely want God to feel differently toward me when he's angry. And so it's the turning away of wrath, reading on with what does he plan to do That with the presence or the present that goes before me. That word present is the word in chapter 2, and I'll have to give you, the grain offering is that word for present. It's mincha. Now, I don't expect you to go away and remember that word for the rest of your life, But you might. Mincha. That word is also translated in Judges chapter 3 with the word tribute. When the man of God, the deliverer who will be a judge, he will bring tribute that the Israelites are paying to the Moabites. That's the very same word. You want to kind of pick up on those meanings that will help you in every verse to have that. And then the word accept. We think accept in the context of what would be the minimum. It's like kids in school. You know, When will the teacher accept my paper that I am writing? Well, we have a deadline. Is there a possibility of extending the deadline? You know, they're negotiating for that. They want to be accepted. Let me tell you something. The word accepted does not ever mean in the Old Testament. It does not mean... Uh, maybe that'll be enough to get by. If God accepts you, that means you're what He wants you to be. If He does not accept you, it's cut and dry. You're not what He wants you to be. Now, to me, sometimes people don't appreciate the weight of words. Like, we talk about things that are important. Y'all probably heard me somewhere at some time talking about the difference between important and necessary. A lot of things can be important. Your health, your vacation, uh, your work, your education. I can go through a list of those. But if I listen to Jesus, I will hear him say, there's just one thing needful. That's not a list. You don't get to say one, two, three, four. And I've always loved to tell this story. If I were to tell my wife, I love her more than I hope I'm not coming up with the name of someone here right now, but I love you more than Susan. And she says, uh, who is Susan? And I say, don't worry. You're number one, but Susan's number three. She begins to get worried. Who is number two, and how long would the list be? Can you see what I'm saying? So when we talk about God, And we sing songs like he is everything to me. Not most things. He is everything to me. That's the kind of relationship all of us want. In my marriage, my wife doesn't want to be just number one. She wants to be number one and there's nobody following. That's the way it has to be with God. So, we gotta grab hold of a little bit more of the words that we use from the Bible. But coming back, accept it. Verse five. He the individual has a lot to do here. He shall kill the bird or he shall kill the bull before the Lord, presence of God, and the priest. Now we get into them. Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The worshiper cannot apply the blood. Did I correct the mental image people have? Sometimes when we talk about Abraham being ready to sacrifice his son, Art, and I've seen a lot of it, has Abraham with the knife up in the air, about to stab him. That would never be. In a sacrifice, you would slice through here. You would cut through there. And that sacrifice would bleed out. I feel like it's probably harder that way if it were your son. You know, you could, in a fit of rage, just start stabbing. But you can't control the blood that way. It's not blood just being splattered all over. It's to be received and from that to be applied. And at this time, only the priest could receive it and apply the blood. Coming back in our reading. Verse six He shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The heat, the individual there, he's not just an observant. <coughs> he's there participating. I'm afraid maybe what we forget sometimes is that we participate in worship. We if I understand seeing We speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're speaking those words. We are participating. And you cannot have your mind in neutral. This isn't a place to come wake up. It's a place to be awake before you get in here to do so. Returning back. Skin the animal and cut it into pieces. Rabbis think it would have been cut into 12 pieces for the 12 tribes of Israel. Coming back, the sons of Aaron, the priests shall put fire on the altar, that's only they that can do it, and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he, going back to the individual, shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice. This is a beautiful verse here. An offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If it's of the flock, I want you to notice how it ends. Verse 13. It says, an offering... A burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if it's a bird, verse 17, is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And this is a repeated refrain in the other chapters as well. That shows purpose. Do you want God to be pleased with what you do in worship? You know, in the days of Malachi, they thought it didn't have to be the best. If an animal's going to die, I'm just trying to imagine, if an animal's going to die, what difference does it make if it's blind? What difference does it make if it's lame? No, it's, we've learned songs like this, give of your best to the Master, and that's what we do when we come to worship. But I love the statement, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, I think we all want to do that which will be pleasing to God. If not, it's in vain. It really is. No use to it. But if your purpose is to do it in a way that would be pleasing to him. How do I know what's pleasing to him? He tells me. Even with the sin offerings, he'll tell me what you have to do. It's different than what we're seeing right here. Well, there are similarities, and sometimes it can be a bull. But with the sin offering, now I hate to go too far here, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering, consecration offerings, they all burn the same thing. And what is the same thing? The kidneys and the fat. You'll soon find out it is a prohibition to eat fat or eat blood in the rest of the chapters where we'll be going. Now, Why the fat and why the kidneys? Had a class about that today. And I'm doing some research. The fat is in Genesis chapter 45. Joseph's, well, father has been invited to come. Pharaoh says, come, tell him to come. He can live on the fat of the land. The best of Egypt. That's symmetry, by the way. And what does it mean? It means fat and the best are synonymous. When you're offering it to the Lord, again, you are offering the best. Really. The next word is kidneys. And this fella had some difficulty today. But then he saw it. And the kidneys are sometimes translated like um, in Psalm 25, I think, verse 2. It will talk about, examine my mind. And the marginal reading will say, kidneys. And he'll say, is that the way mine is written out in the New Testament? No. It is if uh, they're quoting the Old Testament, but they can use Greek words that have nothing to do with kidneys. Why would that be the case? And I told you what I understand, people, and the word sentiment is also translated from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 11, and I think verse 20, you'll have the recording if you forget, it's translated with the, from the word kidneys. Now, please, before you get upset, we say something like, I love somebody with all my heart. Does the heart have the capacity, the, that organ there, to love and to have sentiments? No. But you attribute it that way. The Jewish people, Hebrew people, didn't do it that way. They would grab their loins. Even a woman in childbirth would put their hands behind them. It's where they feel the emotion strongly. Men as well, strongly. And so they associate, not that they pull out the kidneys to burn and say, wow, I didn't know that animal could think. It's nothing to do with that. But they see it's the, if I understand, the very best and the deepest emotion. And that has a lot to do with the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. Uh, One other offering I'm leaving out. I don't mean to do that. But you can go to the end of chapter 7 and you'll see the law of, and they'll go through all these offerings because they are distinct. I think we read there's an offering, we think, yep, that's a burnt offering. No, no, not necessarily. We've got to pick up with these clues that can help us. Now, I want my worship to be a sweet aroma to the Lord. I would have no doubt all of us want that. Now, I may be wrong. Maybe somebody's so hardened in their heart, they don't care. But I would like to think we all want it to be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Can I give you just a final example of something? Hebrews 11 talks about the patriarchs and that God was not ashamed to be called their God. That's high praise. If Abraham said God, it would please God to know that his name was on his servant's lips. That's the way it should be for us. God should not blush. He should not be ashamed. He should not be disappointed. When we praise him, you bring a lot of luggage with you. And you've got to get rid of all those things that contaminate true worship. And it can be done. And it's not just because you're thinking immoral things have have to be corrupt altogether. It could be that you're thinking about a football game or what we're going to have for lunch. That's not. In and of itself, something wrong, it's out of place. And when we hear here to worship God, we don't want to bring anything in that is out of place. It doesn't belong here. And in that way, we can offer up to God what pleases Him. There's a lot more I would like to say. But I think that covers chapter 1 pretty well, and I enjoy preaching this sermon. I'm not going to give you a study through the book of Leviticus in two more nights. It can't be done, at least not by me. But I hope to show you something, maybe come Friday night, from the book of Leviticus, that perhaps you have not considered before. Can we encourage you? We want to. Oh, how much we want to encourage people. But I don't know anything more encouraging than truth and the sincerity with it. That's what Mark was telling me about Greg. It's just it's just so sincere. It's part of his person. Sincerity means everything in a marriage, everything in a family, everything in a friendship. It means something. With God, (laughs) did you think it wouldn't mean anything to him? Oh, it's essential to him. And may you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. That's what the Lord wants, all of you. Not all of you, but all of each one of you. That's what the Lord wants, and you know it already. Let's grip that, not turn loose on it. We can encourage you in any way we invite you to stand, and sing with us, and we can help you in any way we want to.